Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Always a joy to be here with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 is where we're going to be this week. And Matthew 4 is where we'll be next week, just so you can kind of go ahead and prepare your heart for that next week and know what to read and pray over. But Matthew 3 is where we're going to be this morning looking at verses 13 through 17 as we consider Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. And the title of the sermon this morning is Real Original, The Baptism of Jesus. I know, real creative. um, Yeah, that's not my strong suit. The ESV sermon uh, section heading really helped me out on this one. So, Baptism of Jesus is what we're going to be looking at. It's a wonderful passage. Let's go ahead and dive in and see what Matthew has to tell us about our Lord's baptism. Beginning in verse 13, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As a kid, one of my favorite VHS tapes we had, uh, for you young ones, VHS tapes are the greatest inventions ever, much better than DVDs or streaming. My favorite VHS tape we had as a kid was the collection of the Max Fleischer uh, Superman cartoons from the 1940s. Uh, They stand the test of time. They're absolute classics. They're the first animated adaptation of Superman to the, to the screen. And so these cartoons always contained really key moments in them. And the, the most memorable to me is whenever the problem arises and Superman realizes it's time to save the day. Superman, by the way, is Clark Kent. If I'm spoiling that for anyone, I'm sorry. <laughs> Clark Kent would look up to the sky and he would go near the phone booth where he's about to transform into Superman and he would look up and he would say this looks like a job for Superman and that line always stuck with me and then Superman steps in and he saves the day and how does Superman save the day by doing the impossible by doing for the people what they could not do for themselves well that in many ways paints a small picture for us of what is being declared to us about Jesus in this passage. Uh, From the info provided to us 
from Matthew in verse 13, Jesus travels all the, way to Gal- uh, all the way from Galilee to the Jordan in the wilderness of Judea to be baptized by John. It's probably a 70 to 80 mile journey for Jesus here. And he comes for this singular purpose to be baptized. Uh, many of us may be familiar with this scene, you may have read it, you may have it underlined. I remember visiting my grandmother's church in Alabama as a child and being amazed at the giant stained glass window behind the baptistry which depicted Jesus with his head bowed as he's about to be baptized by John. And of course, they look nothing like you would expect them to really look like from the biblical text, but that's another story for another day. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts or alluded to in all four gospel accounts. It's a very pivotal moment in our Lord's ministry. In fact, it's the beginning of his public ministry. This is really where things kick off for Jesus after 30 or so years of really just living a normal, maybe on the surface obscure kind of life. Jesus steps into the spotlight here in this scene and kicks off his public ministry, which will culminate a few years later in his crucifixion and resurrection. But it all begins here in the Jordan River where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. But the scene is much more than the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. See, back in chapter 1, verse 21 of this gospel, Matthew reveals to us, through the message of the angel to Joseph, what Jesus came to do. And this is really the lens through which we read this gospel. You might remember this scene from Jeff's sermon during Advent. And instructing Joseph to take Mary as his wife, the angel tells Joseph that the baby that she is carrying, that Mary is carrying, is to be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's come to do. He's come to rescue sinners. He's come to save us from our sins. And here in this baptism scene, at the beginning of his public ministry, long before he goes to the cross and rises again from the dead, We're told how it is he will save us. Like Superman, Jesus will save us by doing what is impossible for us to do on our own. He will do for us what we cannot do. He will save us, beloved, by living the life we could not and have not lived. He came to live a perfect life of obedience on our behalf. That's The overarching theme of this baptism scene, it's not merely Jesus kicking off his ministry and now we're on the road to the cross. Right here in the beginning, we see everything he's going to do. So if you grasp one thing from this passage, understand that Jesus came to save us by living a life of perfect obedience on our behalf. And we're gonna see that as we walk through the rest of this passage. There's two parts to this passage, two parts to this scene And I'm a good Baptist this morning. They both begin with a C. So here we go. First in verses 14 to 15, Matthew recounts to us the conversation. The conversation. Place yourself in the shoes, rather maybe the sandals of John the Baptist for a moment. He was the voice in the wilderness spoken of by the prophet Isaiah who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Through him, God called his people to make ready for the arrival of the Messiah. By confessing their sins and being baptized, 
This isn't the baptism that Jesus later institutes in Matthew 28. This isn't Christian baptism, but this is a preparatory baptism of repentance. This was how the people of Israel prepared themselves for the coming of the Savior. And multitudes of people from all over Israel are coming to John, confessing sins, being baptized. And all of a sudden, here comes the one John's been preparing the people for. Approaching John for baptism is the one he is baptizing folks in preparation for. So if we're in his shoes, we're probably a little puzzled. And we know from the text that he's very puzzled because he can't keep it to himself. Matthew tells us in verse 14, John would have prevented him. He was trying to prevent this. He was trying to stop this, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? That's a reasonable question from John. John knows who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He's the spotless one, the holy one, the sinless one. This is the one who's going to bear the judgment of sin in the place of his people. John, though a prophet, is still a sinner. Yet Jesus requests John to baptize him with this baptism reserved for sinners. We can understand why John would ask this question. But in verse 15, Jesus tells us why he has come with this really odd request. Verse 15, Matthew tells us this. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So I said this was a conversation in the first half of this passage. It's a very brief conversation. John's puzzled. Jesus gives this statement, and John obeys the word of the Lord. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell John he is wrong in asserting that Jesus should be baptizing him. John makes the right assertion about Jesus. But instead of engaging in a long, drawn-out theological discussion on the matter, Jesus simply tells John, let it be. I know you have questions. I know you're puzzled. Let it be for now. This needs to happen. Why? Because it is necessary. It is fitting. It is right for us to fulfill all righteousness, John. Righteousness may be a hard word to spell, but it's not a hard concept to understand. To be righteous, biblically speaking, means you are a keeper of the law. More specifically, it is to be a keeper of God's law. Law, biblically speaking, is anything that God demands or requires. So to be a righteous person means you uphold all that God requires or demands. Broadly speaking, God's law can be summarized by these two great commandments. First, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. To be righteous then is to personally keep those two commandments perfectly and perpetually. No deviations, no exceptions, perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. That is what Jesus declares to John that he has come to do. He has come to fulfill all righteousness. He has come to perfectly fulfill the law of God. And his being baptized is a part of that. Now you won't find the command to be baptized anywhere in the Old Testament. 
There's not an Old Testament law under the Old Covenant which commands people to be baptized in preparation for the Messiah. But John, being a prophet of the Lord, was a mouthpiece of the Lord to his people. What John said to the people, they were to hear and respond with obedience. So here comes this prophet, this final prophet, before the Messiah comes, calling the people to be baptized. Jesus coming to do and fulfill all righteousness. What does he do? Heeds the word of the Lord. He goes into the water, requesting to be baptized, and is baptized. So Jesus, though he has no sin of his own, though he has no sin to confess or repent of, is baptized because he is the one who has come to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to perfectly fulfill all that God demands, including this command. Therefore, he urges John to baptize him. And John, even though he probably did not understand everything that goes into this statement from Jesus, obeys the Lord's command. But the thing to see here is that Jesus did not come to fulfill all righteousness for his sake. This isn't for his sake he's doing this. He himself is righteous. Remember what John said, you need to baptize me. And yet you're requesting me to baptize you. He himself is righteous. He's the Lord incarnate. He's righteous because he is God. He's holy. He's fulfilling righteousness. He's keeping the law for the sake of his people. To be rescued from our sins, beloved, we must be declared righteous by God. We must be declared to be law keepers. This isn't anything new or novel that Jesus is bringing to the table. This has been the case since the garden. In the garden, when God made his covenant with Adam, it was conditional. It was based upon his obedience. Obey and you will live. Disobey and judgment comes. As we know, he rebelled against God and was banished from the garden, alienated, estranged, cut off from fellowship with God. And though not a single one of us has measured up to the demand of the law, the standard is still the same. God's requirement for life is not diminished because of our sin. To have life with God, you and I must be found to be perfect law keepers. As Paul says in Romans 2.13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. As Jesus told the lawyer in Luke 10, do this and you will live. Or consider the words of David in Psalm 24.3, that great psalm about the ascension. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who is going to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who will dwell with the Lord. Only doers of the law will be justified. Bad news for us. On our own, we have no shot of earning life. It isn't just difficult. It's not just really hard. And if you put forth enough effort, you can earn it. To borrow the language of Jesus, it's easier for us to squeeze camels through the eyes of needles than to fulfill this law. Can't be done. But Jesus, as the second Adam, as the true and better Adam, 
comes to fulfill for us what we could never fulfill for ourselves. He comes, and unlike the first Adam, fulfills the law. He meets the standard required for life so that we may have life in him. Jesus didn't just come to take away our guilt. Praise God he did. To be made right with God, our sin must be dealt with. God is just and he demands justice for sin. But to have life, we must also be perfect in his sight. And Jesus comes to do both. He comes to take away our record of law-breaking by his death. He is the Lamb of God, the spotless one who takes away our sin. But also by his spotless perfection, he secures for us a perfect record by his life. That's why Jesus urges John to baptize him. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. And this is the path of Jesus' life. Never once will he waver. Never once will he fail As we're reminded in Hebrews 7.25, he's holy, unstained, separate from sinners. He will perfectly obey all that is required by God, even unto death. He'll satisfy the positive demands of the law by his living, and he'll uphold and fulfill the demands of the law for those who break it. He keeps the law positively and satisfies God's demand for justice through his death. As Paul says later in Philippians 2.7, Jesus was obedient even unto death, death on a cross. All righteousness is fulfilled in Christ so that he may take away our sin and give to us his perfect record by faith. All of that is in view in this simple statement from Jesus. Here we have a preview of what's going to ultimately be accomplished before he sets out in his public ministry, before he goes to the cross. Here is what I've come to do. And for us now, standing on the other side of Christ's finished work, his death on the cross, his triumphant resurrection, we read this scene and we're reminded of what it is we have in him. Our sin has been removed. And now we stand declared righteous by the Father, accepted by him. All that was required for us to have life has been completed for us, church. There's no more work required for us to do because all the work needed has been done. That's what Jesus was declaring when he said, it is finished from the cross. It is finished. Not just it's been fulfilled, but there's nothing left for us to do. Now and forever when the Father looks at us, he does not see our unrighteousness. He does not see our filthy rags of sin. He sees Jesus. He sees law-keeping. He sees righteousness. Though we've not been righteous, never will be. Not even on our best day. He sees us as if we have perfectly done the right thing always. This is good news. Because we're going to continue to battle against the flesh. We're going to be bombarded with temptation. We're going to struggle in our faith. We're going to doubt. We're going to fall. We're going to come up short. And yet as we battle the fight, the banner flies overhead. Everything's been done for you. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for you. That's why I'm so baffled when I hear people say or suggest that we are initially justified by faith on the front end and now it's up to us to preserve ourselves and make it home to glory on the back end. In other words, we 
are justified by grace, but we keep and preserve ourselves by works. Are we to pursue holy living? Amen. Are we to strive to love God and neighbor? Absolutely. But not because we are attempting to prove ourselves worthy of entering heaven. We'll never be worthy. We pursue good works because we have been justified. We strive to live righteously because all righteousness has been fulfilled for us. Once and for all time, it has been done. There's nothing more for us to do. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Beloved, this is good news for us this morning. But there's more for us to consider this account of Christ's baptism. Following the conversation, second and finally in verses 16 to 17, Matthew tells us of the confirmation. The confirmation. Immediately following the baptism of Jesus, Matthew provides us insight into what might be one of the most remarkable scenes in all of Scripture. We get a feel of this amazing moment by the repetition of the word behold, used twice. Matthew really wants us to see and take notice of what is happening in this moment. Let's continue and see what he says, beginning in verse 16. Matthew tells us, and when he, he being Jesus, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Notice who is present in this scene. All three members of the Trinity. This is one of the clearest proof texts in the Bible for the Trinity. Our God is one, as Deuteronomy 6 teaches us. There is no God but the one true living God, Isaiah 46 tells us. But this one true living God exists in three persons, three distinct persons, not modes. God doesn't put on his father hat, son hat, and spirit hat. Our God is one who exists in three distinct persons, father, son, and spirit. Absolutely amazing. But this moment at the Jordan is not primarily a proof text for the Trinity. This scene comes on the heels of verse 15, that amazing statement from Jesus we just looked at. He's come to save his people by fulfilling our righteousness, by living the life we could have and should have lived, but we haven't. And then immediately comes this amazing scene. This moment before us in verses 16 to 17 serve as a heavenly confirmation. This is a hearty amen from the Father and the Spirit to what Jesus just declared. It's validating. It's putting the stamp of approval on what's just been declared. Let's begin to unpack this and let's start at the end with verse 17 with the father's statement. When the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, there's two primary Old Testament references being alluded to here. The first is Psalm 2-7, which is a messianic psalm. Psalm 2 is all about the coming king in the line of David who's gonna rule forever. And in Psalm 2-7, the father declares of the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth as your possession. The son, 
the Messiah, the coming one, would be the eternal king who's going to rule on the earth forever, judge the nations, execute righteousness, set all things right. But the final verse of that psalm ends in a very interesting way. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you have this two-sided coin of who the Messiah will be, eternal king, ruler over all, and refuge for sinners. That pairs nicely with the other illusion in this statement. Alongside Psalm 2-7, that this is my beloved son, there's also an allusion to Isaiah 42, the first of Isaiah's four servant songs, which says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. There's that idea of being well-pleased. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In other words, he will set things right among the peoples of the earth, which first and foremost will involve setting things right between sinners and a holy God. This servant's restoring work comes through his suffering. If you go on to read the final servant song, that famous text in Isaiah 52 and 53, we read and toward the end of that song in Isaiah 53, 11, and 12, that the servant of the Lord shall make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. This is who is anticipated. Eternal king of righteousness who comes to be the refuge of his people by bearing their sins so that they may be accounted righteous. And this is coming on the heels of what's just been declared by Jesus as he goes into the water. What a validation that is. The father is saying through, these, through this statement, alluding to these Old Testament texts, to John, to all standing on the banks of the Jordan, and to us as we read, the wait really is over. The period of anticipation and longing for the coming of the Savior, it's over. He's the one. This also explains the descent of the Spirit as well. That Isaiah 42 text says, my spirit will be upon him. And as the father declares that, the spirit descends upon Jesus. As the father speaks to confirm, the spirit descends to confirm the truth about Jesus. And it's all to confirm for us, he really is who he says he is. He's really come to do what he said he's come to do. Remember, John's going to be beheaded pretty soon. It's good to know you're dying, not for a foolish cause. What Jesus said isn't wishful thinking or something he made up. He's not some loon from the backwoods of Nazareth. When he says he's come to fulfill all righteousness, it's the truth. Because he's the well-pleasing beloved son of the father on whom the spirit rests. He and he alone, no one else. I love trying new restaurants I love hearing the opinions of others. I'm a foodie. I like to try new places. And I love asking foodies. I know that's a weird word. Uh, if you're a true foodie, I like to hear your opinions because you know what good food is. And if you hear a good recommendation from someone who really knows food, it carries a lot of weight with it. I'm going to be more tempted to try that place. Now, if, if you're asking me what I think good food is, my preference is McDonald's all day, every day, so I'm not the best person to ask about food. 
Some of you others might have better recommendations. And if I hear a great recommendation from someone who knows food, that's going to carry a lot of weight. What about this endorsement? How much weight does this carry? The God of heaven speaking and descending to confirm the truth to us. What an encouraging scene we have. But still there's more. Zoom out from the statement from the Father. Zoom out from the Spirit's descent. And let's consider this question. Why didn't the heavens open up at the baptism of those baptized before or after Jesus? It is only when Jesus is baptized and only when Jesus is baptized that the heavens open up. This doesn't seem to be speaking of a simple movement of the clouds in the sky and the sun shining down as was made famous in the late 70s Jesus film. This appears to be a tearing open of the heavens beyond what is seen and an invasion, as it were, of heavenly glory. Sky is rent open, we see a glimpse into heaven. Now John doesn't tell us what that looks like and we're not going to dive into that. We're not going to speculate. Or excuse me, Matthew doesn't tell us. All he tells us is that heaven opens. The spirit descends and the father speaks and it opens only to Jesus. John baptized multitudes of people. Why does it open for him? Of course we could say because he's the son of God, that's always a good answer. But there's more here than just that. Though Jesus is the son, there were others referred to as a son by God in the Bible. In Exodus 4, verse 22, the Lord instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go that he may serve me. And if you remember, when Israel is delivered, they cross the Red Sea and God makes his covenant with them and they say, we're going to do everything you've commanded us to do. We're going to keep all the words of the law. And then like 20 minutes later, they're making a golden calf. They fail. They're an unfaithful son. They break the law. Consider also in Luke's gospel account, Luke refers to Adam as, the, as a son of God. Luke 3 verse 38 what did Adam do as a son? Disobeyed. Break the law. But the true son, the son, when he takes on flesh, what does he do? Perfectly obeys. He comes to be what Israel failed to be and ultimately what Adam failed to be. And ultimately both Adam and Israel were both pointing to him all along. He and he alone is the son and in his incarnation, he and he alone is well-pleasing to the Father. We are sure of that by the simple fact that heaven opens to him and him alone. This opening of the heavens is a sign of what is promised to us in the law. Life for those who obey. Fellowship with God if you perfectly keep the law. Heaven is veiled to everyone else because everyone else fails. Everyone else has broken the law. Everyone else fails to measure up, but not Jesus. Unlike Israel, unlike Adam, and like all of us, he perfectly obeys. And because he perfectly obeys, the Father is well pleased with him, and heaven opens to him. And by this scene, there's also a preview for us, isn't there, of what Jesus will achieve for us. After Jesus cries out, it is finished from the cross, 
breathes his final breath and dies, immediately we're told in Matthew 27, verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain, of course, was the curtain which marked the entrance into the Holy of Holies in the temple, which only the high priest had access to. And he only had access once a year. Tradition tells us that a rope was tied around the foot of the high priest in case he entered with sin and was struck dead. They would pull him out. But now, that curtain had been torn, signifying the truth Jesus declared to his disciples in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just as heaven opened to Jesus, through faith in him, heaven opens to us. Not because we've pleased the Father, but because Jesus pleased the Father on our behalf. Because of his perfect obedience for us and his perfect obedience unto death, we have been reconciled to the Father. We've been adopted into his family. We've received the status of sonship. We've been adopted by the Father. And he declares of us the same word he declares of his Son. This is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. That's how the Father views you, church. You're his beloved, and in you he's well-pleased. Not because you're well-pleasing to him, or you will be well-pleasing to him, but because Jesus was well-pleasing to him on your behalf. That's good news for sinners. That's good news for Christians who still sin. Like Paul, we can testify in Romans 7, 18, and 19 that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And yet the Father says, you're my beloved. And you, I'm well pleased. What comfort this brings to us. This confirmation from heaven wasn't ultimately for Jesus' sake, just for our sake, church. These are words for us to hear and consider. We really don't need to look for another. He is the one. In him, all righteousness has been fulfilled. In him, our guilt has been removed. In him, there is life everlasting. As we come to a close, I want to end our time how we began, by talking about Superman. If you'll indulge me for a minute. Place yourselves in the shoes of those in need of rescue in Metropolis. Maybe you are stuck in a burning building and can't get out. Maybe you're being held for ransom by the evil Lex Luthor. Maybe an alien invasion is threatening. Whatever the case is, when Superman arrives to save the day, what is it that you have to do? Simply watch. Simply sit back and be amazed at the one who's come to save you. Well, church, it's true as we come to the end of this text. If you notice, there is no imperative in this text for us. Nothing for us to go do. Sometimes as Christians, we have a really good habit of taking a text where there are no demands placed on us and adding demands to them. Inserting law where there's no law. This is a pure gospel text. Good news meant to comfort us. If we're going to say there's any command in this text, it's that simple word, behold. And by beholding, that's no real work, is it? It's simply focusing and setting our eyes 
The only thing Matthew wants us to do in this text is to simply set our eyes on Jesus. As Pastor Jeff reminded us last week from Hebrews 12, verse 2, that's the key to living by faith, day by day, isn't it? Looking unto Jesus. Faith, we are told, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if I want to be strengthened in my faith, if I want to follow Christ faithfully, what do I need more than anything? I need to hear about Jesus. If I have doubts, I need to hear about Jesus. If I'm struggling with sin, I need to hear about Jesus. Whatever the case may be, whatever the stumbling block there may be, whatever the hindrance to our faith there may be, the solution, the remedy is the good news. And what a text we have before us. I want to share J.C. Ryle's prayers. He commented on this text over a century ago. Reflecting on this baptism scene, J.C. Ryle writes this. May we ponder these words well. They are full of rich food for thought. They are full of peace, joy, comfort, and consolation for all who have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ and committed their souls to him for salvation. Such may rejoice in the thought that though in themselves they are sinful, yet in God's sight they are counted righteous. The Father regards them as members of his beloved Son. He sees in them no spot and for his Son's sake is well pleased. Amen. May we indeed ponder these words well. If you are here though and your hope and trust are not in Christ alone, Ultimately, there is no comfort, joy, and peace for you in these words if you are outside of Christ. As we have seen this morning, the only hope you and I have as sinners is found in the finished work of Jesus. And if you would be reconciled to the God who saved you, forgiven of all your sins, declared innocent in his sight, and accepted into his family, it comes through faith alone in Jesus alone. If you have more questions about that, find me after the service, find one of our leaders, Ask the person next to you. We would love to talk more about you. Our greatest concern, more than anything, is that you would look to Jesus Christ alone and live. Through his perfect obedience, he has done everything necessary to save you. Trust in the Christ that we embrace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us to rest more and more in Christ, who has done everything necessary to save us. May these words indeed be a source of peace, joy, comfort, and consolation to all of us who are in Christ. And may they bring about the salvation of those who are still lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.